Hello from Austin and welcome to episode 102 of the National Security Law Podcast. We're brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. It's Wednesday afternoon. It's December 5th. I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Vladek and I have bronchitis. Oh, jeez, poor guy. I, I knew last week you weren't doing as well as you as you normally uh, do in terms of you know sprightliness. Yeah, well, you know, I'm I'm very sprightly, but it was um it was especially awkward yesterday when I was arguing in the Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces and trying to resist hacking up my lung every 15 seconds. You're going for sympathy with the judges? Seriously, take pity on me. I'm sick. Okay, what were you arguing about? Uh, this was the that random tra- trailer to Dalmazi that got sent back because the Court of Appeals had this intervening decision while. Dalmazi was sitting in the Supreme Court. It's actually a, a somewhat interesting uh, retroactivity case, but but not really national security law. Okay, a, all right. Heavy. Well, I'm glad you're you're uh, soldiering through with the uh, the illness. Sorry to hear about that. No, I mean I think the real problem is that you know I'm I'm probably going to have a cough drop in my mouth for most of this podcast, <laughs> and it's going to really annoy some people. But trust me, the alternative, which is me coughing my way through this whole podcast, is going to be worse. Fair's fair. So, right, um, Bobby, what's going on? Uh, you mean in life in general? Sure. In, in sports. Uh, all <laughs> yeah. of the above. No, things are good here. Things are good. Uh, wrapping up the semester, uh, this is the last week of class for me since uh, I think our overall schedule ends on Monday. So the cybersecurity law and policy course is grinding to an end. And of course, I'm always trying to jam in more stuff in a class than we have time for. And you, you always know. roll. I know. And you rolled over to the next class and, and tomorrow's the last class. And so... So, we how, had so a, how much material do you have left for the last class? Um, Seven classes? Eight classes? Well, what we're going to do is I usually end it with a crisis simulation, oh. and we're just truncating that a little bit to save room. If we're talking about fun things like um, the Section 1642 authority of Cybercom to conduct out-of-network cyber operations against uh, Russia, China, North Korea, or Iran – if the National Command Authority determines there's an active ongoing campaign of hostile cyber activity along the lines of election interference or interference with the American political process. Bet you most people didn't know about that one, unless they listen to this show carefully. I was going to say, I mean, our listeners are, are a special bunch. It's it's quite a thing, actually. It's quite interesting. All right. but That, that reminds me, by the way, of, you know, so did you see the, the Twitter controversy involving Rudy Giuliani? Uh, I did. And I got to say, there's, it's, on one hand, it's obviously insane and ridiculous. On the other hand, I, I do wonder, like, to, to what extent is, is this a guy, like, what's his capacity? It's a capacity issue, and it might be a sign okay, that... but this is the guy the president named as his cybersecurity advisor, and he doesn't understand that, like, Twitter treats a period without a space after it and with two letters after it as a link, <laughs> and that someone went and bought the domain name so that anyone who clicks on the link is directed to a site that says Donald J. Trump is a traitor to the country. Well, and if you look through the... the I looked a little <coughs> bit through his feed when I saw the one... Because he, he then wrote this angry... About how, Twitter, and, about and, how it, was, it was this Twitter conspiracy. Well, and not, it's, it was bad enough if that's what he'd actually said, but of course he didn't even convey that in a very clear way. I, I read it to my wife, and we both thought... That sounds like somebody who's got a capacity issue, and, it, and maybe there's an element of sadness about that. But but it's certainly not helpful, and he sure shouldn't be advising anybody on cybersecurity. I mean, there's a longer conversation here. And by the way, so we should probably take a moment since today is December 5th to to say a, a quick word about the late President George H.W. Bush, whose funeral is, is ongoing as we speak. Yeah, it's, uh, it, it's a very um, poignant moment for the country, and obviously I think uh, it's just thick with symbolism about many of the things that many of us feel are currently um, not riding high in our national political discourse. The man in civility, my, humility, he, civility, humility, honor, uh-huh. dignity. Uh, he was a great 
people quibble about his policies, but as a head of state, as distinct from a head of government, I think he was good at both. Um, he was, I think, indisputably a great head of state. And I think that that is one of the many dimensions along which we currently suffer from lack of greatness, Yeah, I mean, I, ironically. I, I completely agree with that. I mean, I think, you know, you and I probably have some pretty significant differences over some of his policies. But, you know, it's a good example of our podcast, of, of how you can have significant policy differences without being disagreeable. Um, Absolutely. And, and, you can, and you can have debates while still respecting the folks you're disagreeing with. And you can understand that some things are more important than winning you know, your political fight at that moment in time. That's right. I think it's, you know, I think a lot of people would say it's best captured by the the famous anecdote of the note he left, the yep. handwritten note for yep. Bill Clinton yep. on the Resolute desk or in it. Clinton arrives in the office, Bush having vacated. There's this wonderful, just it's the generosity of spirit in it, talking about how, you know, you're our president now. I wish you nothing but success. Good luck to you and your family, you know, you're going to find there will be many hardships in this, in this office. Don't let it detract you from distract you from what you're trying to do. That to you're, me is, you're our president now. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And and that to me is just the quintessential quality of, of that person and what I think we should all be aspiring to be like. And it's funny. I, I wonder as as President Trump sits through all of this today and hears people saying the things we're saying, but probably far more eloquently and far more emotionally. You know, that's going to be him sometime in the not so distant future. And I wonder if he has any thought about like, you know, what, what, how his, how different his legacy is going to be. Oh, I, he may, but I don't think he's going to, it's not going to change his, uh, it's not going to set his compass in a new direction. Anyway, but I do think, I mean, it's a fascinating moment of inflection. Absolutely. Um, And I think there's some people who will say, ah, this is perfect symbolism because now that's gone. I don't think it's gone. I think it has to be fought for. It has to be defended. And it's part of our job and all you listeners, it's part of your job to do that. And by the way, look at, look at Jeff Flake. He finally did something. Oh, I, I knew you would be so excited. You and, I, you and I have had this like nine month you, debate. You've wanted him to do some specific things along exactly this line. And, and he, he did and he's it doing worked. It. There you go. Well, it sort of worked. Uh, yeah, well. We'll see what happens. Um, all right, so what's on tap for today? Okay, we've got a, a reasonably short list. <laughs> and and uh, as we were warming up, I said, well, it looks like we actually have a short one here. And that's Steve always, laughed. That's just, that's just, you're, I think, all, that's, you're jinxing us. I think this will be a short one unless you filibuster to disprove me. Mm. Now, we have a military commissions update, of course, because that is our true and deepest sustaining member. I mean, this is this is off the chain. Hey, can I just say, by the way, I, I miss Dovey Mattis as a uh, as a, a recurring topic. So, so uh, in response to a tweet thread of mine about what we're about to talk about with regard to the military commissions, your friend of mine, Matt Tate, at Point All the Things, just wrote, "My God." <laughs> That's a pithy way to sum up, uh, well, half this podcast. Indeed. Um, okay, so a military commissions update, followed by a uh, relatively brief note about uh, an interesting, uh, I think, coordinated action by the Justice Department and the Treasury Department uh, involving uh, the ransomware attack, most famously impacting Atlanta, the San Sam, Sam Sam ransomware attack. So there's been a dual indictment and also some sanctions action all rolled out at once. It's pretty pretty cool stuff. Um, then we'll turn to Trumplandia, where we have a, an array of small bore items. We've got, you know, uh, you've got uh, Flynn, uh, Cohen. We've got a Hannity note. We've got uh, an update on Attorney General, or is he Attorney General? Whitaker, all those sorts of things, probably more besides. And then a National Security Division update, just one case to report on involving a service member who just got 25 years. And uh, how about we close with some notes on the uh, the Yemen resolution? Yeah. That's I was going to say it's interesting political moment. Absolutely, and I was going to say it's I was going to say it's working its way through Congress. That's not quite right. It's working its way through the Senate, 
And we'll talk about it both as a political moment, but also in terms of the underlying national security legal uh, elements there, since we do want to keep keep that anchor. Um, Wait, this podcast has a theme? We have, we have <laughs> our theme may be frivolity. Um, and speaking of frivolity, the college football playoff rankings are out, and we have opinions, and including about games that aren't part of the playoff structure. Yeah, I mean, you know, not to give too much away, but there's such an obvious way to solve this problem, and it's ridiculous that we're not doing it. Yeah, yeah, I, I think we're going to agree on that one. So, so let's try to find something we can disagree about uh, in a congenial way. Hmm. Uh, but I think this The one, Robinson Cano trade. Wait, did he just get traded? Where have you been? I, working on my last week of class, dude. I know. Do you know? To, do you know which team gave up like eleven prospects to get Robinson Cano and and Edwin Diaz, the closer from the Mariners? I'm gonna Edwin Diaz, somebody Diaz. I, I don't know. I'll give you a clue. Okay, you root for them. The Mets. So yes. Uh, wait. How because, old? You know, how how old is Robin sucks. Cano? He's 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 old. Yeah. Yeah. No. <laughs> Did we throw in? <coughs> did we throw in the Bobby Bonilla contract so as part yeah, of this deal? Like Robinson Cano could like go hang out with Bobby Bonilla and like Bobby Bonilla and like Brett Saberhagen. Bobby Cania, you just Bobby gave him Kinea. a great nickname. Yeah. <laughs> oh um, my all right, so should we start with the 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 insanity that is yet another twist in the layers and layers of gross yeah. putrefaction dip that is Al Nishiri? Oof, man, that's harsh. That, I'm not sure I'd say it's that bad to the point of putrefaction. But convince me, what's happened now? All right, so so this is actually my fault for being a little bit slow on the uptake. So we actually knew some of this information before we sat down for our last episode, but I hadn't processed it until it showed up in a court filing. So folks remember the, the latest twist and turn in the Al Nashiri case. Al Nashiri is the alleged mastermind of the USS Cole bombing. Um, he's on trial for capital murder in the Guantanamo Military Commission. The pretrial proceedings have hit, shall we say, one or two snags along the way. <laughs> Well, the latest complication um, is the now former trial judge, uh, Air Force retired Air Force Colonel Vance Spath, um, was pictured at a ceremony for swearing in new Justice Department immigration judges, which led Nishiri's lawyers um, to wonder for exactly how long Spath had been negotiating with the federal government to work for them, even as they were the adverse party in the capital murder trial over which he was presiding. So they sought discovery. Um, the basically, I mean, this started while the trial proceedings were abated. So they went to the Court of Military Commission Review. The Court of Military Commission Review said, you know, there's no there's no basis for this. Like, you know, you, this is a fishing expedition. Go back to the trial court, which, as I mentioned at the time, was kind of funny since there was no right. trial court. Um, and the government said, yeah, we're not turning anything over. Like, whatever. We don't think there's any there there. Um, then the, uh, Nashiri filed a petition for a writ of mandamus in the D.C. Circuit seeking extraordinary relief, um, basically to seek Judge Spath's disqualification, given that, according to Nashiri, um, the as-yet-undetermined negotiations between Spath and the Justice Department created an obvious conflict of interest um, and a ground for reasonably calling into question the impartiality of the trial proceeding. Um this is where things sort of were when Carol Rosenberg, the absolutely, like, n- the, the dean of the Guantanamo reporting bar, the indispensable Carol Rosenberg, did something totally crazy. She submitted a FOIA request um, for the very documents that the government was refusing to turn over in the uh-huh. year. Um, she just went to the, the, the Justice Department, the Executive Office of Immigration Review, EOR, um, 
and file the FOIA for all of the materials relating to SPAT's candidacy and application and negotiations um, over becoming an immigration judge. I take it they gave her something. 311 pages later. Wait, how quickly did they respond? I'm sort of used to this idea that that's a much slower moving train. Took, it, I mean, it wasn't overnight. So so Carol had actually, I think, initially filed this request some time ago. Yeah, okay. Um, but the request, you know, coincidental timing when the request came back in mid-November. Right, so they come back and cough up 300 plus pages um that could be 300 pages of boring boilerplate or was it something not so boring yeah i mean let's just uh talk about some of the things that come up um so here's i'm, I'm now just going to read from the reply brief that nashiri has filed in the dc circuit um to the extent it was as respondents contended quote unclear at this point how many of colonel spath's orders are potentially implicated unquote that was solely because respondents had refused to turn over documents in their possession but it is not unclear now as Petitioner noted in his motion to supplement his petition attachments, a reporter from McClatchy, editor's note, mm-hmm. Carol Rosenberg, filed a FOIA request with the Justice Department. That request resulted in 311 pages of public records that show Colonel Spath applying to respondents for employment on November 19, 2015. Now, of itself, that's interesting, that for the better part of three years, he was involved in this application process. But it gets much, much, much worse. Um... Colonel Spath, I'm I'm still reading from the reply brief. Colonel Spath sought out recommendations from at least four government employees, military and civilian, who would feature his role in petitioner's case. This included a judge on the CMCR, which at that moment was deciding two interlocutory appeals the prosecution had brought in petitioner's case, and who made a point of noting that as chief Air Force appellate judge, I continue to oversee his work. Um... These documents also show that Colonel Spath's negotiations with respondents influenced his behavior on the bench. On March 20th, 2017, for example, respondents formally offered him the immigration judge position. A few weeks later, <coughs> excuse me, a few weeks later, Colonel Spath issued his aggressive trial schedule. In late June 2017. Wait, so wait, just to pause on that one. So they're saying that he got what he wanted. And then the, they're saying the payback was an aggressive trial schedule. No, 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 but of course, no, no, it's no, not proven. That he sped up because well, I'm not getting there. All right. right? The, there's that the whole argument here is that he the course of his rulings was affected by the growing impatience of the Justice Department with his putting them off and putting them off and putting them off. So let me keep reading. You mean putting off to accept the job? We've taken you. We need you to come work for us. He's exactly. like, all right, I got to hurry up and finish this case. Exactly. I got, I got somewhere I got to go. Exactly. In late June 2017, respondents offered him a start date of September 18, 2017, which he tentatively accepted pending confirmation from the Air Force. The Air Force evidently required more time to prepare his replacement, and so in mid-July, he attempted to delay his start date further, saying, I remain detailed to a case at Guantanamo, which requires significant time to hand to another trial judge. Um, subsequent email traffic between respondents' human resources staff stated, Spath is still in negotiations. He said there was some kind of issue with the military finding a replacement for him. We've had some issues with this candidate. Four days later, Colonel Spath denied the first of petitioner's motions, seeking to prevent the monitoring of his attorney-client communications, which, by the way, was layer one of the dip. But wait, Bobby, it gets better. The following day, Colonel Spath asked respondents, so the following day, Right, so after he denies the motion for additional investigation into the legacy microphone. The following day, Colonel Spath asked respondents to postpone his start date to, quote, May 15th, 2018, or later, unquote. The same week, 
Petitioner's trial counsel discovered a hidden microphone in their attorney-client meeting room and the other facts contained in the still-classified Dolphin Declaration. Over the course of the next two weeks, they provided SPAT the Dolphin Declaration and filed a series of motions seeking to compel discovery into the source of the microphone and seeking interim remedies to secure their attorney-client communications. As these motions were being filed, Respondent's Human Resources staff told Colonel Spath that management did not agree to his terms. He was informed that his requests for additional delay were not being well taken, that he was not guaranteed the position, and that his application would be re-reviewed in January or February of 2018. A few weeks later, he summarily denied petitioner's motions relating to the monitoring of his communications, holding as a matter of law that counsel for the prosecution's assertion uh, that they personally were not privy to petitioner's attorney-client communications dispensed with the need for any further inquiry or relief. Colonel Spath's dickering, I'm still reading from the reply brief, Colonel Spath's dickering over his start date continued for the remainder of the year as most of petitioner's trial counsel withdrew, as Colonel Spath unlawfully imprisoned the chief defense counsel, and as he pressed forward with weeks of one-sided evidentiary hearings where petitioner's sole attorney was an inexperienced Navy lieutenant only five years out of law school. Colonel Spath ultimately asked for a start date of July 8th, 2018, and respondents notified him that it agreed on the afternoon of February 18th, uh, February 15th, 2018. At 8.02 p.m. the same evening, Colonel Spath confirmed the following morning he abated proceedings in Petitioner's case. So listen, I, I, Wait, I want to be very clear. I, I need you to help me because you're a master of the details here, <laughs> and I'm having trouble following everything, so I suspect listeners will as well. Here's the, base, the basic claim. Cashed out that last bit. So he, he abated the proceedings. Why is that the smoking gun? So the, the, it's the smoking gun. So let's be clear, right? You don't need a smoking gun. You need the appearance you know, of completely, impropriety. Actually, let me, let me begin by saying, of course I agree that the appearance of impropriety alone is a problem here. Right. And, we're not and, about and, and substantively, intent. it is problematic to be engaged in this negotiation. And we're not talking and, about his intent. Right. And the defense didn't know, it wasn't disclosed, and all that good stuff. Okay. Um, but to understand whether there was, in fact, decision-making influence here, yes. that's I'm, I'm, it's not so, obvious to me from what you're so saying. So the argument is that... Um, as he was getting more and more frustrated with how long the pretrial proceedings were taking because of all the trouble with the counsel, um, he was getting increasingly nervous that he was going to lose this position. And so once he finally agreed to a hard and fast stop date uh, or start date with the Justice Department, he had to extricate himself. And so the morning after he agrees to a July 15th start date in February 2018, he abates all the trial proceedings so that he no longer has any responsibility and so that by the time there is more work to be done in the trial court, he will no longer be the trial judge. Is the idea that as long as the case is proceeding towards the merits, he keeps getting stuck in the further twists and turns in, in knowing it will, this case will never be resolved on the merits. And it's harder and it's harder. But why to can't he just judge. why can't he just quit and say, Listen, I've I've got a new job. I'm someone else is gonna have to take this over. Like why does he have to do anything to if disrupt the case? If he told people he had a new job, they'd ask what the job was. I mean one of the things that's But they were gonna know. There's no, no way he could ever how, hide wait, that. Wait, wait, why were they gonna know, Bobby? Because he's gonna become an immigration judge. The only way people found out is because he showed up in a photograph at the swearing in ceremony. There was I, no public there was no public disclosure of his hiring as an immigration right. judge. Right, and the idea that, that photographs and <laughs> other evidence of what became of him would never happen. No no one could possibly think they would go off to this other career and it would be a secret that no one would ever know. I, I mean, I, I don't know what people were thinking. All I know is this is, you know, to my mind, an incredibly disturbing um, coincidence. Well, I think that, to go back to the important point, the appearance of impropriety for judges is critical. 
there, there's a huge problem here. There's a substantive problem with non-disclosure of the negotiations and all the rest. I'm not, I myself, I listened carefully to that recitation of the timing and, and certainly there's smoke. I, I don't necessarily conclude fire from that. I could, I don't know that that's the best interpretation that he was actually taking this further wrongful step of deciding things for these uh, improper motives. But I, think but I you know, certainly understand why the why Nishiri's team is, is arguing that. I think you're applying the wrong standard. The question is not whether he acted improperly. The question is whether a reasonable outsider could reasonably believe that his actions were in any way influenced or appear to be influenced by the fact that he was involved in these negotiations by his future employment. Right, which is why I began by saying that I agree, the appearance of impropriety is the important question, and it's more than problematic here. So we're not in disagreement about what should happen here. This this is a huge problem. Now, I, I am interested in how do you cash this out? Like, what actually happens in the case? Do you just, like, set it back to square one and start over? Um, let's get to that in a second. But I do want to underscore, there is there is an important sort of maybe morally important question, like, is this person actually using his office substantively in ways to serve his own personal interest at the expense of, of, of both sides in the case? Uh, it's possible. Clearly, there's reason to be concerned about it here. I don't think the date's in the sequence that I just heard dictates that outcome, but that doesn't mean he gets to stay on and it was all fine. That's a separate question. Yeah, I mean, I think I think the question of just how, if you're going to, I mean, if the D.C. Circuit does find that there's a conflict here, um, how far back they sort of wipe things out is going to be an interesting question. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you could say that everything from the moment he decided to apply for the job onward. Maybe, and then, you Which know. Which would wipe it all out, right? I mean, three years of rulings in this case. Has he been on this whole time? Was yeah. he, when oh, did yeah. he first come on? 2014. Okay. Yeah, so so initially you'd have some of this, and you might have to vacate. Is this like is this like taking away the NCAA, taking away your entire season's worth of victories? And yeah, you just kind of wipe the record clean. Except that, except that, unlike the, so there, you don't replay the games. Here well, it's mid-season, to, right? So here, you you have to replay the games. So yeah. so here, so the government. Let me sort of let me just sort of get us up to date on the procedural posture. Yep. So the government has actually, in addition to opposing the request for mandamus, the government has also opposed the motion to supplement the record. Um, right, the government basically wants to argue that the D.C. Circuit shouldn't consider the 311 pages of material that Carol Rosenberg discovered through FOIA, which I have to say, I find especially galling and hubristic because the only reason why Carol Rosenberg was remitted to FOIA because they blocked was the, because they refused to. Turn okay, so what's the, the normal in the abstract? What's the normal standard for supplementing the record? So I mean, to supplement the, it is an appeal. It's it's factual. It's, it's unusual, right? The government's not wrong that we generally don't. I mean, this is the fight in the census litigation, right? The, the government's not wrong that we don't generally decide appeals based on evidence outside the record, right? Um, Normally, court, that would be grounds to remand it back and then right. consider the evidence. Here's part of the problem. The problem is is that the military commission is bound. Um, the, the, there's, it's not at all clear that Judge Schools, who's now the presiding judge, would have the authority to reconsider Judge Spath's rulings because the CMCR has ruled right on the abatement proceedings, and so she's bound um, by all of those rulings. So um, the argument now, the government says, well, at the very least, Nishiri should have to go back to Judge Schools to create a record, um, and then come back to the D.C. Circuit. And my response to that is, why? Like, what you know, what is the what is the interest? in injecting another, I don't know, six months, eight months, yeah. just to come right back to the D.C. Circuit. Like, we're sitting under a stay right now. Is it possible that the government could come back with additional documents that aren't in that FOIA dump that would provide different context and color for the various decisions? Yeah, but they could have already said that. They could have said, in the yeah. alternative, if you're, if you're going to grant their motion to supplement the record, we have additional items that we would like to, and they haven't said that. Mm -hmm. I mean, one of the things that's remarkable about the, motion, the government's opposition to the motion to supplement the record, and Marty Lederman pointed this out first, so I should give credit to him, um, is what it doesn't say. 
It doesn't say anything yeah, I saw about that the records being incomplete. Okay. It doesn't say anything about the records not telling the full story. It doesn't say anything about the records not supporting the series' yeah. disqualification. It takes from a the formalist merits. position and Just tries to win on procedure. formalism. Yeah, well, it seems impossible to imagine that it that that's going to stick. I mean, it's like how you know if you're a DC Circuit judge, and if the whole point is to get this train rolling correctly. Yeah. I mean, why why are you inclined to send this back to the trial court just so it comes back in eight months? Anyway, so this all culminated with an order, I think on Monday, um, where the D.C. Circuit set this case and a similar appeal from two of the sort of resigned, sort of dragoon back onto the case civilian lawyers mm. for oral argument before the same panel on January 22nd. Ah, that's what it was. Yeah. Somebody, somebody had tweeted at us saying, you guys are going to come up for this. You'll probably be up there for that. I'm you, not. You have an oral argument up there every other week. I really don't. Um, dude, yesterday was the second oral argument of my life. Come on. <laughs> yeah, but 20, 2019, the year of Steve. <laughs> God help us. Uh, show title? No. God, God help us. That's or too self-aggrandizing. But so all this is to say, we don't yet know who the panel is, but man, I mean, I, I'm not going to be there. I really wish I was. Yeah. This is, so I guess my <laughs> bottom line is it, it, one way or the other, the principles that matter to me here are You've got to do right in terms of the appearance of impropriety. You've got to take account of the reasonably available evidence that reflects this. And you've got to keep account of the fact that this has been going on for so many years and that it's it's reached this sort of, uh, you know, it's almost like a cascade effect. Like they talk about in biology, a cascade where a complex system, which is this is increasingly fitting that bill, um, has collapsed in so many certain respects that it starts picking up a momentum, a snowball effect of its own. Um, we're not quite at the point of total system collapse from from that sort of cascade, but the ten layer dip is a way of describing that. I don't, I don't know how many layers we've got now, but maybe they can come in here with one giant procedural nacho and sweep away some of the layers. But also, I mean, I just don't understand. Like, I mean, the government—if the government really want, if if the government doesn't didn't think there's a problem here, why stonewall Nashiri on the yeah. documents? No, it's, it seems it sounds to me a lot like, in many respects, the Nashiri litigations unfolded with a lot of play for the immediate win type of litigation Without strategy. Without sort of long-term vision? Yeah, yeah, just sort of, because maybe the long-term, hard, hard to know what explains it. Well, so, but so, so, so let me sort of, as a last thing, let me just sort of, I'd be remiss if I didn't take yet another opportunity to criticize the D.C. Circuit panel that decided Al-Nashiri 2 and held that it was appropriate for the federal civilian courts to abstain from resolving Al-Nashiri's jurisdictional challenge to whether he could even be tried in a military commission yeah until after his post-conviction appeal because the military commission should be under, you know, we can have faith that the military commissions will expediently and efficiently resolve this question. In fairness, who could possibly have foreseen quite this level of insanity? All of us. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. wait. No, no, you, no, 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 you, no. you foresaw exactly this level? I mean, come on. This is even, this surely is more than you foresaw. I, I mean, I don't know that I foresaw these exact degrees of insanity, right? But, you yeah. know, the notion that, like, we were going to have smooth pretrial proceedings. Yeah, it's, but there's a huge gap between smooth and, and this. I mean, I mean, the DC Circuit, and this is by this is 2015, right? We'd already taken seven years to get yeah. this far. Look, I, I'm DC actually sympathetic, circuit, as you know. Yeah, I, I, I want them to bite that off. I just think that uh, we've we've gone into the twilight zone here, well, deep yeah. into the twilight zone. Rod Serling would be so proud. Yep. Um, all right, we've got uh, some Justice Department, Treasury Department joint anti-Iran activity of sorts. Although one of the big questions here is, 
Is this really properly thought of as, as at that state level, or is this just as it is on its face, action against some individuals? Um, last Wednesday, the Justice Department announced uh, indictments of two Iranian men who were who are alleged to be behind the Sam Sam ransomware attack that rocked Atlanta and Newark, Port of San Diego, all these hospitals, some <coughs> 200 plus entities in recent years. As recently as this September, um, these are this isn't spreading in worm-like fashion. These people are targeting specific entities. They're they're taking advantage of vulnerabilities to access their systems. They're um, navigating about. They're implanting Sam Sam, and then at the moment that they think's most uh, likely to cause problems, the the indictment describes choosing to act when it's uh, after business hours, when it's middle middle of the night in the United States. They activate the ransomware. The theory being that it's most difficult to get uh, assistance and help at that point, so the the leverage is strongest. Uh, they've reaped millions of dollars in. Uh, then value of Bitcoin, which were then converted to Iranian rials. Uh, they're not in custody. This is, in that sense, rather like the recent series of indictments of, of Chinese government agents uh, for their commercial espionage attacks. Notably, that the indictment does not allege, and I actually haven't yet seen anything alleging that these guys were doing this on, on behalf of or at the behest of any Iranian governmental authorities. So at least on the formal face of it, and maybe I've missed something and that's been whispered about, but on the face of it, it's being treated as if it perhaps is a simply an international criminal scheme, albeit one that caused millions and millions of dollars in damages way beyond the $6 million in uh, ransoms that were paid. What's pretty interesting about this is watching the interagency process doing its thing. Even in the Trump administration, still capable of a bit of coordination. Maybe that's because it's an Iran situation. Um, OFAC, the Office of Foreign Assets Control, which administers the role of the Treasury Department in sanctions under AIPA, uh, issued a... Oh, I can't believe... I know you're not well, Steve, because normally I can't say AIPA, AIPA. with that. There you go. Um, they issued uh, sanctions against two Iranian uh, Bitcoin exchange operators that are uh, the exchanges identified in the indictment as the ones these guys were using to cash out their Bitcoin. Uh, and at the same time, OFAC issued some updates to its increasingly voluminous set of uh, frequently asked questions about how the whole sanctions business maps onto Bitcoin, because increasingly now the types of people who are being sanctioned, um, they're trying to hold and store value in the form of Bitcoin and other digital currencies. And so these new instructions have to do with, okay, say uh, you're an institution that has that has control or access to, say, a Bitcoin wallet, um, and you have reason to believe or you know that someone who's had their assets blocked is uh, is associated with that account in that Bitcoin. It's it's all about this process of trying to extend the the normal controls of sovereigns over the currency systems, which are so central to the sanctions game, to the wild and wacky world of of uh, Bitcoin and other digital currencies. So watch that space. But again, nobody in custody, no claim yet that this was actually government sponsored activity. Um, Steve, why don't we turn to the wild world of Trump Landia? Right. Um, so let's start with the the Attorney General. Who, who's the Attorney General? Well, did we already do this? We, we, we did this in some detail, but I believe you mentioned that there there's was some, a, some something cooking challenges. at the Supreme Court now. Yeah, so, you know, it's, we, we had speculated when, when, when we talked about this in our live show, episode 100 in DC, about which case might be the first to actually resolve this issue. I had thought, perhaps overly optimistically, that it would be the in grand jury subpoena appeal in the DC Circuit um, regarding, oh, what's his name, Andrew Miller. Um, who's challenging the validity of Mueller's appointment. 
Um, I, that, that may have been overly optimistic because the parties have actually both now told the D.C. Circuit that they think it can be resolved with – they think that the case can be resolved without resolving who the attorney general is. Oh, boo, that's no fun. But we'll see. I mean, the D.C. Circuit's not bound by that. I mean, they could yeah. disagree. Um, so Tom Goldstein, who is a, a, one of the, I think, most accomplished graduates of American University Washington College of Law um, and who is an incredibly well-known – uh, Supreme Court practitioner and also the founder of SCOTUS Blog. Yeah, he's Mr. SCOTUS Blog. Indeed. Um, which, by the way, is I mean, the, his end of term tweets when people are tweeting at SCOTUS Blog thinking that it's the Supreme Court and he uh. responds <laughs> is just the greatest thing in the history of the world. That's awesome. So Tom, um, Tom found a pending cert petition in a relatively non-exceptional federal criminal case. I mean, I, it's, it's not the kind of petition, Bobby, I would have thought had much of a chance of being granted mm-hmm. in the abstract. Um, and he filed something called a motion for substitution, uh, where he basically said that, listen, ordinarily when there's a change in, the, when, when a, a, an officer is sued in their official capacity um, and there's a change in the occupant of the office, the federal rules of appellate procedure provide that the court should automatically substitute the new officer for the old one. Um, that's why, for example, you know, names of cases change yeah, right, right. all the time. Okay. Um, but Tommy said in this context, um, it's not clear who the proper substitute is for former Attorney General Sessions. Um, and basically, he moved to substitute Deputy Attorney General Rosenstein, who, as the motion argues, is the valid, properly, um, you know, by operation of law, successor as acting Attorney General for Sessions. Um, and he asked the Supreme Court not only to consider the motion expeditiously, but to uh, even consider setting the motion for argument. Um, but without regard to even whether they should grant certiorari. Yeah, I wonder in all the history of the court, has there ever been even a request for argument in a substitution motion like that? So I couldn't find one. Um, there are, you know, I, I did because SCOTUS nerd questions are, are, are fun. Um, <coughs> I, did, I did get a couple of questions about the last time the court heard oral argument on a motion. It actually happens, or at least used to happen, with some regularity in the context of the Supreme Court's original docket, where the court is acting as a trial court, and where at least until I think 1980, the parties had to file motions for leave to file the original application. Um, And so therefore, the court would sometimes hold argument not on the actual thing, but on whether it had, for example, jurisdiction. So, you know, you know, one of my first articles was about this 1948 Supreme Court case, Hirota versus MacArthur. Mm -hmm. Um, There, the court granted a motion for... Um, or, or let me put it this way, the court received a motion for leave to file original habeas petitions from 11 defendants convicted by the Tokyo War Crimes Tribunal. Um, and the court um, divided five to four and set the motion for argument five to, with four, over four dissents, which was remarkable. Like, you know, four justices dissented from setting the case for argument. So it's happened not in the substitution context. Um, it hasn't happened here. Now, the thing that I found most interesting about this tactic, as opposed to the other cases where this has come up, is Tom's opening brief, and especially his reply brief, um, doesn't uh, pull any punches. Um, The reply brief opens by saying we're in a constitutional crisis, um, that sooner or later the court's going to have to decide this question, and so why not sooner, um, and all the above. Now, you know, for some of the same reasons I talked about last episode, about my concerns about departing from regular yep. order. The race to the top of the court system. <laughs> I mean, I just, I don't, you know, I'm not sure that the justice is going to be in any hurry. I, 
it strikes me as exactly the sort of thing they do. They would like somebody to address this first before it shows up as if it's a... Yeah, I'd be really surprised if that works. I don't blame him for trying, I guess, although it kind of just raises the question like, well, you know, what? how is how is your client... He has a real client, presumably, in this yeah. case. Like, how exactly is this your client's interest as opposed to the country's interest? But yeah, although, it must be in some fashion. Maybe just he needs the court to take it, and maybe if they take this, then they'll take the rest of it. I will say, like, listen, you know, when you, when you file a paid cert petition in a non-circuit split case. You got you to have a reason to... You're trying to, get, you're trying to draw attention to it by any but means But does necessary. this do anything to increase the chances of taking it on the merits? No, but it does increase attention. If, if the case somehow did in fact present a cert worthy, worthy issue that wasn't obvious at first blush, yeah. surely now you know, folks are paying more attention to the underlying paper. Yeah. I, all this, I, just, I don't think there's any harm to the underlying client here. I, there may not be better. Sure, no, well, that, there is that, right. All right, um, cool. But, but all that's just to say, I mean, this is yet another example. Um, and, and, and Tom's not subtle about this. I mean, in footnote two of the reply brief, um, he basically points to all of the times in recent months where the Solicitor General has asked for extraordinary or emergency relief. And Which says, proves your point that there's a bit of a Pandora's box Precisely. Yeah. And so I would love, love, if in at least one of these cases, and maybe, and maybe it'll be easier for the court to do it in a case where the... Kind the of a Marbury move? Just Not yeah. even a Marbury move, just like some kind of like joint statement from a couple of justices who don't necessarily agree yeah. normally on why departures from regular order are disfavored, yeah. Yeah. even when the stakes are... Even if not especially when the stakes are high. Right. Well, and maybe this... My point about the Marbury move is maybe this is your William Marbury. This is your yeah. this is your case where in in I don't know we'll see what happens. But I I think that you're right that there's a concern here, and now we're seeing quick evidence that the regular order is 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 fracturing or fraying potentially. And, and meanwhile, we're coming up on a month since Sessions was unceremoniously dispatched. Um, I think it's four weeks ago today, yeah. and no movement on naming a successor. By the way, it's it's been re- interesting always to watch where these people go after they leave. Any idea where Sessions He's is? He's been very quiet. Yeah, wonder where he'll end up. Mm. All right. Um, I, I think he'll end up running against Doug Jones in the for the Alabama Senate seat in 2020. Oh, yeah. Whoa, that'll be a that'll be a barn burner. No, it won't. You don't think so? No. Why, why makes you so confident? I'm not confident. No, no. I'm, I'm in the, I'm, it won't be a barn burner. Doug Jones... Doug Jones won because of a perfect storm. Of oh, you're saying the other way you think Sessions would probably crush him? Absolutely. Oh, okay. No, no, the Democrats, yeah. part of the problem with the Senate map for Democrats, well, I say problem, right? Some people say, you know, part of the good thing with the Senate map for the Democrats in 2020 is that it probably starts with, like, one loss automatically. And that's the Doug Jones? That's I Doug didn't Jones. know. I didn't know how his, I don't follow his standing in. No, he's, listen, I mean, I, I don't think he's done anything, like, especially exceptional or, yeah. you know, defeat-worthy. I just think that Alabama. They haven't, Alabama hasn't changed in some fundamental way. Well, if you, yeah, if you don't nominate Roy, Roy Moore. Roy Moore. Right. Um, okay, so future Senator Jeff Sessions, look forward to seeing you once, uh, back once, in the once Senate. Once in future. And once in future. Um so, a couple other Trumplandia things, real quick. Uh, so, on the Mueller investigation, we've got Mike uh, Flynn Michael, and Michael Cohen. And Michael Cohen. Now, so Flynn, it's been widely noted, um, the recommendation of no jail time based on what appears to have been very thorough and consistent 19 cooperation. Different, 19 different meetings with the special counsel, right? Mm-hmm. There are um, heavily redacted references to Flynn's cooperation in ongoing criminal investigations both within and outside the special counsel's office. Yeah, apparently we're, we only know there's there's three different cases underway, only one of which is the, the special pros, special prosecutor's investigation into Russia. There's two others, and he's he's given information or, or worked with 
to other investigations. So, which, which among other things, right, is, is, is interesting in a couple of different respects. First, here's another document that is not just in the special counsel's office, right? There's, there's now a historical record of this that's in the possession of the federal district court. Um, so even if there's some, you know, Saturday Night Massacre-like moment where Trump orders acting Attorney General Whitaker to shut down the investigation, you know, with every day, it's harder to sort of wipe out the results and the sort of the the the, the documentary evidence of of the investigation. It, uh, it's certainly the, so. Is there anything else to say about Flynn? So I, just, I, just one thing, right? Which is, um, I, I do think um, that, and this is why I think it's related to the Whitaker point. You know, obviously everyone's trying to speculate up the wazoo about what's behind all those redactions. Um, you know who probably knows what's behind those redactions? Hmm. The acting attorney general. Sure. Um, well, it, I, I would I would hope so. He, it, he's the acting attorney general. But if the acting attorney general knows, I think it's safe to say the president knows. Maybe, maybe not. That assumes some degree of logistical sophistication and actual kind of conspiratorial behavior that is no, not no, no, beyond no. him in principle. Whoa, 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 but wait, I don't know. Wait, if wait, they hold can, a second. I don't yeah. think so. So hold on a second. I think there's a norm against regular information sharing on ongoing investigations yeah. between the attorney general validly appointed or not and the White House. I don't think there's any hard and fast constitutional or statutory rule. No, the executive power is invested in the president. Exactly so. so. so he is the ultimate chief law enforcement right, so officer. I, I don't think it would necessarily be conspiratorial. No, I meant that in a colloquial sense. I know. Yeah. Um, I, I guess I, it doesn't do a lot for me because I assume that there's, in one sense or another, a lot of attention being paid to figure out who's possibly under investigation, yeah. who's been summoned to a grand jury. And they probably have a decent idea of what these other cases are. Um, what about uh, anything so to say the, about Mike Cohen? Well, there's the Russia hotel, right? There's the Trump Russia. There's the Moscow hotel deal. Um, there's Michael Cohen agreeing to plead guilty to yet additional charges. Yeah. So this was false statement to false Congress. False statement to Congress. Um, now that this came up, we hosted a big event on campus here at UT last Friday. Sure. And uh, the the amazing part of the event was when Senators Richard Burr and Mark Warner, the chair and vice chair of the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence, sat down with John Corning, moderating, and talked about the investigation. It was really, really neat and a hardening. Uh, uh, thing to observe, and you can eventually you'll be able to go on the uh, Strauss Center website and, and watch this. Um, Warner and Burr were shoulder to shoulder, insisting on bipartisanship, insisting on the importance of being able to disagree politically but get along uh, as as persons, and in putting the interest of the country first and foremost above partisan interest. Uh, the two of them deserve huge credit that none of that surprised me because of how the the committee has conducted itself and how they have but this was this was a pretty neat moment and it was it was the biggest thing they wanted to talk about and they were sitting there side by side clearly kind of passionate on the subject very refreshing um and they talked about and burr was really clear <coughs> i mean almost with the senator time, burr senator burr with the yeah uh, a note of anger in his voice about people lying to the committee and making clear that if they get reason to think you've lied, they will absolutely do a criminal referral, and you're going to go to jail in the end if you do it. So Cohen's evidence of this. As long as DOJ brings the prosecution. Well, that that's the they did, thing. No, I mean, they did here, right? Yeah. But, but I do, I mean, this is, you know, this is the interesting potential endgame for aggressive House investigations come January 3rd, right? I mean, that's, yeah. so we'll see. I mean, we shall I, see. One, just one quick note on that. I mean, I think it will give House subpoenas more teeth if the Senate is also sending referrals to DOJ, and if it actually doesn't just look like partisan. That's right. It makes it, it, makes it harder to, to do that. It makes it institutional, yeah. not partisan. It, makes it, it, it does underscore a point that uh, the, the, right now the, the, the sub-institution best position to do this sort of thing is clearly 
the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence. They've got the will to do it. They have this investigation. By the way, uh, he also underscored something that I hadn't really appreciated before, but I think is really important. As he framed it quite reasonably, yes, the investigation itself is sort of, in a narrow sense, focused on what happened in, in the 2016 election. But he and Warner both, Burr and Warner both, made clear that this this committee's engagement is an ongoing engagement, prospectively as well, and not Russia limited, but it would encompass China or anyone else who might come along and try to play these same games sure. now that the way of doing it has been shown. Um, and so I think it means that the, the committee has a role to play beyond the narrow confines of this particular totally. investigation. Agreed. All right. Uh, anything else to say? All right. In the interest of your bronchitis, let's move along with a quick note about National Security Division activity. Um, this is a case I think we mentioned a little before when the conviction occurred, but now we have a sentence. Uh, this is Eric Kang. Ikeka Eric Kang, a U.S. Army sergeant based in Hawaii, uh, is now going to go to jail for 25 years with 20, 20 of supervised release to follow that. Um, what happened here was in around 2016, uh, the government, one way or another, detected that this guy is watching Islamic State uh, propaganda videos. By 20, uh, I think 18, he was suspicious enough. By sometime this year, uh, that the FBI put undercover uh, agents into his orbit, people posing as Islamic State. Uh, there was a, there was a guy pretending to be a leader and cell members all wanting to work with him, and uh, eventually he swore an oath of loyalty to the Islamic State. And they eventually arrested him at the point where he said he was going to take his assault rifle and go kill people in Honolulu. So 25 years for that uh, service member, really kind of shades of Major Hassan is what I think about when I look at this. And we're very fortunate, in my opinion, that what was going on was he was in contact with undercover agents, not uh, somebody like, uh, um, um, oh my God, drawing a blank, Steve, help me out here, the American citizen. Uh, John killed, Lund? No, no, killed, killed in, in the AQAP uh, propagandist and operational oh, leader. Oh, Al-Alaki. Al-Alaki, Anwar Al-Alaki. Thank you. I can't believe I drew a blank on this. Yeah. Let's see what else I can screw up. It's December. Up. <laughs> It's been a long week. It's finals time. By the way, I, another reason I'm all wiped out is we finally kind of put the finishing touches in the revision to my cybersecurity law and policy syllabus, Ooh. which as part of uh, as part of the larger project of building out curriculum in this area where it's it's something the Hewlett Foundation funds, and I'm a grantee of them. And a lot of my work on that class, I, it's, it's meant to be open source. Anyone who wants to either uh, teach using these materials or just read along and kind of absorb it, the document's 62 pages. It's not exactly a syllabus. It's basically a primer written and, and framed out in syllabus terms so somebody can take it and teach out That's of it. That's awesome. It's, it's posted at Lawfare. It's you can get service. it on my Twitter feed. Well, it, it may be full of nonsense. In which case, though, if, you, if you're interested in this stuff, go print it out, sit by the fire, grab a glass of wine, enjoy some uh, Yuletide cybersecurity, and then let me know what you think could be done better. Ru Rudy should read it. I may send it to Rudy. Maybe I should. Oh, I am looking for a co-author. You know, that'd should be that great. Episode title: R Rudy should read your syllabus. No, no. I, like I said, I am. I am concerned. There's a capacity issue there. I don't want to kick a kick him while he's down, even if he's put himself in a position where it's often tempting to kick him. Uh, how about this instead? The Senate Joint Resolution 54 on Yemen withdrawal of U.S. support for uh, Saudi coalition operations against the Houthis. Um, this is getting a lot of attention because something pretty remarkable did happen. Well, it's getting a lot of attention in our universe. It, all things relative. If we start applying too strict a standard to what gets attention that we care about, only the frivolity will survive. Um, so the Senate, by a vote of, I think it was 63 to 50, I mean, sorry, 63 to 37. I was going to say, 63 yeah, to 50 would be impressive. Yeah, there was a couple of, you know, there's some vote early, vote often. No, 63 to 37. Well, hey, you want, you want to talk about North Carolina? Huh? 
the massive election fraud in the North, in the ninth North Carolina congressional district? I I don't know about it, but uh, I'm sure it sounds like it was terrible. Um, so big big majority, a lot of Republicans voting in favor of this. What's going on? I mean, what do you attribute that to? Oh, let's be clear about what they voted in favor of. It's not passed yet. It's no. now going to proceed to a vote in debate. Uh, a debate and then vote, I should say. I actually think it will pass the Senate. It will die in the House. Okay, so, but what's going on? Why? How come something that couldn't get through to the floor is now moving forward? Uh, two words, Jamal Khashoggi. Exactly. I think it's as simple as that. Yeah. Yeah. And this is before, this is before Gina Haspel testified yesterday no, 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 and, and further fueled wait, the Wait, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I, let me, let me, let me be a little more, in fairness to, to what's going on here. Um, it's not Khashoggi, it's not the fact that the Saudi government and Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman orchestrated the brutal murder of Jamal Khashoggi. No, it's about the Trump administration's response. It's about the Trump administration's uh, tepid, um, indifferent, um, dubious response. I think maybe I would describe it this way. The White House is pretending that it's not clear what then we've seen this game before right i don't know who did this maybe maybe it was a maybe a they think of for in the yeah. basement maybe yeah. that's who killed jamal Khashoggi. Right. um when apparently when apparent so so this is actually something we should have i should have suggested we talk about in the show um i don't think i don't think our lack of prep is going to be a problem here um right the wall street journal reported right and had like someone leaked yeah. the signals intelligence um that that allowed cia to, in its view, conclusively determine that MBS was directly responsible for the murder. So Corker came out of the briefing, and his quote was very memorable, something to the effect of, a jury would convict this guy. In 30 M- minutes. MBS in 30 in minutes. In 30 right? minutes. Yeah. So now... Lindsey Graham, who's no, like, who lately has been no right? critic yeah. of this White House, yeah. right, said, you know, you've got to be kidding me. Like, yeah, this is terrible. So, so part of what's going on here is the Senate is not reacting to the substantive foul. They're reacting to the process foul. Yeah, it's both, right? So obviously they're all, these are people who are horrified and rightly so. Um, but they're they're moving to take this action as a shot across the bow of the White House for its gross uh, equivocation on whether whether there's even responsibility here, let alone lack of action to really do anything uh, tough or meaningful about this. Now, whether this is going to turn anything tough, no, it's because, it, as you say, there's no reason on earth to think this is coming out of the House, let alone that there would be veto-proof majorities who would overcome the then 100% guaranteed Trump veto. No, although it would be fascinating if the new House passes it in January and sends it to the new Senate to see if the Senate, you yeah. know, to see if the Senate actually wants to put its money where its mouth is. Yeah, yeah. Like it's it's easy you, for the Senate to pass it this month, right? knowing that it has no chance in the House. It's a lot harder to pass it next month. Yeah, that's a complicated one. I think you're right. I, and I suspect that the, the star alignment we have this week won't be there in the thick of the increasingly acrimonious right. larger constellations of 2019. No, but, but I mean, so, so listen, if, if, if like me, you're desperately looking for signs of hope, um, you know, this is exactly what, this is exactly how the, the institutional checks are supposed to work when it's not just separation of parties, sure. right? And so this is exactly the kind of leverage that congressional Republicans could exercise against this president if and when they find sufficient grounds to do so. We just have very different views of what those grounds are. Of course, what's what's also interesting about this is they could sign it. I mean, one really interesting move from the White House would be, great, sure, whatever, signed it. Now, here's my, pre- here's my presidential signing statement explaining that 
What this resolution does is it orders the withdrawal of U.S. armed forces from hostilities in support of the uh, the Saudi coalition. Um, and then next paragraph says, here's how we've long interpreted hostilities in the executive branch. It's actually rather narrow. What we're doing by way of providing, you know, aerial refueling and other things. Right. We th- interpret this out like no force. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and for, for uh, basis for that, we'll look back to the Obama administration with its statements about Libya involvement. Uh-huh. And therefore, this law is thereby enacted. Heck, I even signed it. But it doesn't have any current application because we haven't done the thing it says don't do. Yeah. I mean, that would be ballsy. I don't. I, uh, that doesn't strike me as as nuanced enough for this president. Oh, I agree. They're not going to do or, it. Sorry, that strikes me as far too nuanced for yeah, this president. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So I think that's it for our substantive talk. Uh, if you don't want to hear the frivolity, sayonara. So um, the college football playoff. Bobby. College football playoff. So first of all, did the committee select the right four teams? Yes. For the, yeah. I think it's a no-brainer for once. I don't actually think it's a no-brainer. I think okay, who who so good. Who should have maybe gotten in there? So. I think the system is corrupt, um, and I think that you know, in a fair and just world, Central Florida would have been no, a team. Come, shouldn't they have to beat somebody good before we can say that? In a world in which these Power Five conference teams won't schedule Central Florida, how is that their fault? Hey, I didn't say it was anyone's fault, but Central, should, Central Florida beat somebody? Do you think they in the bowl game last year? Do you year? think Central Florida, on your honest assessment as a sports observer, think that they're likely in the top four quality-wise? No, but I also don't think. But like, look at the NCAA basketball tournament. Like, I don't think the at-large teams are simply. You know, I think that there's a complicated mix of things that should go into who gets in. But this is, to me, this year is yet further proof that the right solution in the current structure of Division One college football is an eight-team playoff. Absolutely. And, and I'm not, I'm strongly not, agree. I am not one of those who says that because I think that really we should go to 16. Like, I think I think here's... No, no. The, the way to do an eight-team playoff is super obvious. It's so obvious that it's not... Like, I don't understand why this is hard. The, 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 the crowned champion of each of the big five power conferences and then the next three non-power five conference champions, you know, by whatever right. stupid ranking system so you, you want to so devise. So you pick up... You pick up Notre Dame and Boise State no, 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 and Central this year, Florida, no, no, those no, sorts no, of things. No, no, no. This year. So, so let's talk about who that would be this year. Well, okay. You so, wouldn't. Yeah. So this year. I just right? sort of in general. Those are the standard I understand, usual but, suspects. But this year it would be Al- so Alabama, right? Clemson. Mm-hmm. Um, Ohio State as Big Ten champion. Yep. Right. Oklahoma as Big 12. Right. Washington as Pac-12 right. champion. Um, Notre, Notre Dame, Dame as top, top ranked at large. At large. Um, probably Georgia, right? And Central Florida. And that would be a phenomenal, and, and there is not a ninth team that I think would have a gripe after those eight. So I completely agree with all that. Uh, I think I, I think every bit of it. Um, there will be years, of course, where there'll be really yeah, fierce. But, 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 but who cares? Because well, that's a debate at the outer right. edge. So the difference between eight and nine. We're talking about whether you are the third or the fourth best non-Big Five exactly. conference champion in the country, as opposed to who was a better Big Five conference right. champion, right. Ohio State or Oklahoma. No, look, and I, I say this as yeah. someone who bloody hates both Ohio State and Oklahoma, right? <laughs> right? I am a Michigan fan who teaches at the University of Texas. I hate these schools, and yet the idea that we're picking yeah. between them is nuts. The whole the whole point, I think, the takeaway is that the, the friction point should be pushed out beyond... The, the inner the big, core. Well, if you pushed out, well, by, no, com- no major conference should be excluded exact, from this. That's a, so. Any system 
where you have this fancy Power 5 conference nonsense, and yet winning that conference is not enough to get you into this no. you know, playoff situation That's right. is flawed. Well, and I think that the Pac-12 in particular, so the Big 12 certainly been shafted more than a bit, hello TCU, um, in the past. The, <coughs> the Pac-12 is systematically in trouble. Be, well, because the games come on too late for a lot of East Coast people to watch them consistently, and it does begin to feel remote. It's a familiar problem. Everybody knows this is the case. And, you know, then you have a year like this, not that good. Um, I, you know, I, I mean, I, I actually think I mean, both we'll Washington and Washington State are underrated. But what do I yeah, know? Yeah, well, so we'll see, right? Uh, okay, so the games we actually have. Okay, pick it. Uh, OU versus Bama. I mean, the over-under for that game is 79 and a half. <laughs> <laughs> That's going to be a fun game to watch. i got to say, this, this pains me to do it. I can't believe I'm going to do it, but you heard it here first. OU knocks off Alabama. Whoa, big call. Score? Uh, not giving a score, but it's going to be a high score. Um, I think that OU's yeah. offense, and I think Kyler Murray's going to is sort of peaking at the right time. So OU's going to score a ton of points. I'm with you. Yeah. There's one small problem. OU can't play defense. And Alabama's offense is kind of good. Yeah, and Texas' offense was kind of good, and they managed outscore us, and I, I so think, did I others. Think, I think Alabama's going to win 59-51. to 51. Mm, Okay, I think... I, I'm not going to go on the score, but uh, I'm sticking with OU to win this. Even got, though, even talk about talk about a, a prediction against interest. Yeah, seriously. You know, I'm you know if you know anything about UT football, we OU don't, sucks. We, OU sucks. Is the, that's the thing. But they're gonna those suckers are gonna win. Um, okay, Clemson and Notre Dame. Notre Dame. Really? Yeah. Oh, I, I disagree. So we, we disagree about both semifinals. Okay. Okay. So I, I think it's I think we're heading for Alabama Clemson all over again. Okay. Oh my God! Oh please, Barris. Oh, oh, listen, no. I'm not I'm not rooting for that. No, I know, I know. I'm, I'm, and I'm not criticizing you. I'm criticizing the the possibility that might happen. So who who wins in that case? Alabama. Okay. But here's the thing. Like, I mean, can we just? I mean, the whole the, the the argument that we don't have an 18 playoff because it would interfere with these you know student athletes. Um, Education and classroom activities. No, no, I mean, no. that's baloney. I think it's. On. I think it's much. It's much more to do with concern about protecting the way that monetary structures are built around the existing bowls, which, by the way, can all be folded into this structure. Anyways, um, so I think that in my my theoretical Notre Dame versus OU matchup, I think actually Notre Dame somehow. I think OU is going to, if they can knock off Alabama, they'll they'll be done, and then Notre Dame comes in a little hungrier and wins it all. So, so, you've, so you've going Dame. with the Irish to take it all. Oh. I know, so, I mean, I, and I'm Episcopalian, so it's not like some kind of you know you know hometown team deal. I'm, I mean, I'm a Michigan fan. The notion, like the notion that we're talking about, like Notre Dame and Oklahoma in the national championship game. I know, just, gives us credibility. No, oh, no uh, it's sad. Okay, what about uh, so Texas? I think it's very interesting what happened with Texas. Yes. So Texas we're go- got very lucky. I think actually we did. A lot of people aren't seeing it that way. So we're going to play Georgia, which wait, wait, is easily people, wait, the hardest why, draw. Why aren't people seeing? It? So wait, hold on a second. So let's just be clear. Texas got into the uh, Sugar Bowl. Which is awesome. Right? Which is supposed to be for the Big 12 Conference champion. Right. Right. Texas was only in the Big... Texas only got to be the Big 12 runner-up because West Virginia completely and utterly blew it, right? Which allowed Texas to back into the Big 12 championship game. And so... And had Ohio State been picked over Oklahoma, right? Oklahoma would have gone to the Sugar Bowl and sure. Texas would have gone to, like, the... The tax slayer sure. bowl. So if if you're if the question is is Texas lucky to be in the Sugar Bowl? Well, of course they are. The question then is and the one I was answering was oh. is Texas lucky to be playing Georgia? Right, he'll be the most, most pissed pe- off team in the country. Well, and so so Georgia Georgia's I think clearly the best team in the country that's not in the in the uh, the college football playoffs. And yeah, now we've got to play them. This is a huge gap between yeah. us and them in the eyes of most observers. Yeah. So we're going to win. Texas is going to beat Georgia. LOL, LOL. 
this, I'll disagree with you again. I, there you go, of course. Go um, dogs. And uh, it's no no hostility to Georgia. I think they're great. Um, but this they they are they're bound to be the most disappointed team. And yes, that may turn into we've got something to prove. We're going to go out there and stomp these guys. Or this or just like or this is like when who uh, when Auburn had to play Central Florida yeah. last year, and it's like damn it, I can't believe we're having to play these guys. So this, I mean, this is, this is why I think the whole college bowl thing is nuts anyway, because like those are almost different teams by the time they play. It's a month after, in some cases, six weeks since they last played. You know, you've got all these guys who will sit out because they're worried about getting hurt and affecting their Yeah, have we prospects. had any major stars already sort of – because last year yeah, was an epidemic of it. a bunch. I, I guess I just – I understand it. Yeah. I'm not saying I myself would act differently, but I hate it. I hate well, it. If you, had a, if you had a larger playoff situation, you know. Yeah. Um, so the, the thing I want to say about Georgia, by the way, do you know um, why Georgia's the Bulldogs? I do not know why Georgia are the Bulldogs. Yeah. So the, <laughs> one of the early founders of the University of Georgia was a, was a Yaley. Oh, and he wanted to carry on the tradition. He wanted, not only did he want to carry on the tradition, but he the 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 part of the Georgia campus is designed to look like um, old campus at Yale. Oh, that's right funny. down to like this old sort of Georgian style building was meant to look like Connecticut Hall at Yale. Oh, that's wonderful. Well, it makes sense it'd be Georgian style. But I think that people say I think we'd be very surprised that like big time college athletic program traces its you know nomenclature roots to Yale. I love it. Okay, one last game for me at least. Uh, so I think. Central Florida versus LSU. I want so badly to say that Central Florida is going to win that because I do like the underdog. You know, um, I think notwithstanding the fact that, that they managed to win last week without their star quarterback who's out, and I don't think there's any chance of coming back by, no, no, by this no, no, game. No. I don't think they can beat LSU. Um, I don't think it's going to happen. Listen, I, I'll just say this one more time: bowls are totally fluky, and weird stuff happens. Yeah, you got any other bowls you're especially interested in? Um, soup bowls because I'm sick. <laughs> I think that is a good note to end on. All right, everybody. Well, uh, I'm at Steve underscore Vladek. He's at Bobby Chesney. We are at NSL Podcast. Um, Bobby's predictions to the contrary notwithstanding, we did not make it under an hour. So, you know, stay safe out there. Adios.